3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued risk of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, listeners. How are we all today? Wednesday the 7th of June. First June show for the year. Yes, it is. Oh, yes. First June, first uh, week of winter. It's a little bit nippy. The weather's slowly becoming colder and colder. Mm -hmm. I thought it wasn't really that cold this morning. I feel like the past few days has has been quite okay because I've only been wearing a T-shirt and a jumper and that's it. <laughs> you know, I didn't have to wear like a my really big big coat, white coat that I tend to wear all the time. Well, yeah, it's not too bad at the moment. But uh, the most important thing about June is our radiothon, which will be, which is happening now at 3CR. But we'll be uh, focusing on that next week. So we'll be talking about all the ways independent media contribute to factual news, count- countering Definitely. misinformation, and uh, bringing you stories about people from your community so uh, yeah we'll be really uh, focusing on that and we'll even have uh, an interview today I mm-hmm. believe Grace focusing on that so what have we got on for this morning well uh, we have this morning Cloudy we've got a big show coming up so firstly we'll be hearing from the Associate Professor and Dean of Indigenous Knowledge at Murdoch University from Western Australia BEP Inc regarding the voice to parliament uh, Grace is going to be speaking speaking to the editor of The Conversation at about 7.30, uh, Misha Ketchell, regarding the rise of AI in journalism. So that's going to be, that's going to be a fascinating chat there, so make sure to uh, tune into that. Then we're going to be listening uh, to, at 8.08, we'll be listening to Jacob Gamble. Uh, they will be speaking to Netta Moeva, uh, a Pacific climate warrior, uh, regarding the impacts on climate change on the Pacific. Uh, keeping on with that theme, I will be speaking uh, to uh, Moolab- people for a living Moolaboo coordinator, Cameron Steele. Uh, there's been a big issue regarding the Moolaboo River, which is based in Geelong to Ballarat, regarding the on- unlicensed dams, which are multiplying across the river and it's causing huge water shortages. So that's all for today. Excellent. And on to headlines. Vanuatu will put its parliament uh, will put its parliament a security treaty uh, with Australia before the end of 2023 after concerns over China in the re- in the region led to neighboring Papua New Guinea delaying the signing of another such treaty. During a visit by Defence Minister Richard Miles on Tuesday, Vanuatu's minister Prime Minister Ishmael Kaniki said that a security treaty signed with Australia in December 2022 was being was still being examined. Vanuatu's National Security Council was going through the text and it would next be considered by his government's council of ministers, Mr Kaniki said in the Vanuatu capital of Port Vila. It would be presented for ratification before the end of the year in Parliament, he said. On Tuesday, Mr Miles said Australia was happy with the progress being made on Vanuatu's security agreement 
and that it was a profoundly important principle that Pacific's security has to come from the Pacific family itself. And coming into some journalism news, the unfinished book called How to Save the Maze, How to Save Amazon asked the people who know by the late British journalist Don Phillips is to be completed by his friends and colleagues in journalistic solidarity and to keep his legacy alive. Don Phillips and his Brazilian company, and in, who is an indigenous expert, Bruno Pereira, were sadly killed while they were on the way to interview indigenous defenders fighting criminal activity in the Javari Valley in Brazil last June. The book is meant to be about raising awareness on the threats facing the Amazon forest and the indigenous people who protect it. The story talks about the battle to save the forest from the brink of collapse and prevent the global ecological calamity. For those who are unaware, the Amazon forest is extremely important not only to it, not only in Brazil but for the rest of the world as it is the only rainforest left and it accounts for 76 billion tons of carbon. We need the rainforest to stabilize the climate the trees in the Amazon also release 20 billion tons of water into the atmosphere per day, playing a critical role in global and regional carbon and water cycles. And in southern Ukraine, thousands of people have been forced to flee their homes after an ecological disaster overnight. The collapse of a major hydroelectric dam on the Dimpro River has caused a major outbreak in that area. Kiev has said that the dam was blown up by Russia in a desperate attempt to ward off a Ukraine counter-offensive. The US is investigating the matter and says there is the possibility of the collapse being a war crime. And in local news, a man described by a judge as an extremely dangerous offender has been jailed for up to 20 years and four months with a minimum of 17 years after the court found him guilty of a horrendous sexual attack on a woman jogging along Melbourne's Mary Creek in December 2019. The man who had been previously incarcerated for a sexual offence will be placed on the sex offenders list for life. A victim statement expressing the victim survivor's response was read to the court. Information and support for anyone affected by rape or sexual abuse issues is available from 1800 Respect, 1800 737 732. Hi, I'm Nova Paris and you're listening to 3CR. Be proud, be strong. You have a smile. That bring a tear to my eye Are you feeling depressed about the future of our planet? The Eco-Socialism 2023 conference could address your worries by providing a platform for radical solutions. Activists from around the world will examine the links between the ecological economic and political crises of our time. You'll hear from Japanese Marxist Kohei Saito, author of Capital in the Anthropocene, who argues that capitalism's pursuit of unlimited growth and profits is the major barrier to ecological sustainability. Inspirational speakers from the Asia-Pacific region, including India, Pakistan and the Philippines, will take up the fight for climate justice and against war and fascism. Eco-socialism also highlights women's and queer oppression, 
First Nations sovereignty, and so much more, including a session featuring former refugee Baruz Bachani. For more information and bookings, go to our website, ecosocialism.org.au. Ecosocialism 2023, a world beyond capitalism, Saturday, July 1 to Sunday, July 2 at Victorian Trades Hall. A 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR Breakfast with uh, Patrick, Claudia and Grace. We're going to go to a song now and when we come back we'll be hearing from uh, Bep Ewing at Murdoch University about the ways we can protect First Nations people in the lead up to the referendum on a voice to Parliament. Here's Give Freedom, Mystic Trio. Papua Merdeka Power to the people of West Papua Sometimes it's Better to fight than live. 
And you're listening to 3CR Breakfast. We're now going to go to an interview which I did uh, on Monday with Bep Ewink from Murdoch University. And listeners who tuned in last week to the show will remember we were speaking about the ways in which communities can have meaningful engagement with the forthcoming referendum on a voice to parliament. Much of the debate on the voice centres on its potential efficacy. Will it change the lives of Australia's First Nations people for the better? But what about the period before the referendum? How do Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders feel about being under national scrutiny, having their lives and futures discussed? And what is the impact on Indigenous people of feisty and sometimes vitriolic commentary by yes and no campaigners? What role does racism play in all this? I spoke to Noongar Woman and Dean of Indigenous Knowledges at Murdoch University Associate Professor Bep Ewink about the potential impact of the referendum on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, the role of racism and what Indigenous Australians can do to support Indigenous people as we head towards a national vote on The Voice. Please be advised this segment discusses issues of mental health that may be distressing to minority communities. If you feel this might not be something that's right for you at the moment, you may wish to tune out for the next 15 to 20 minutes. We're now going to hear from Murdoch University Dean of Indigenous Knowledge and Associate Professor Bep Ewink. I asked her to begin by sharing a little about herself and her work. So I'm a a proud Noongar woman living here in Buraloo, WA. Um, I'm the Dean of the School of Indigenous Knowledges at Murdoch University, which is actually a new, a new school for the university. And I do research into both the impacts of racism on Aboriginal teenagers' mental health and how non-Aboriginal adults can prevent racism, but also the well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander LGBT young people. Um, and so looking at how those uh, two identities can intersect to actually Um, create some vulnerabilities for wellbeing. Thank you so much. I wanted to start off by asking you about the voice to parliament and the referendum, which are top of the national political agenda. But before we go into the specifics about this referendum, I just wondered if you can tell us what it is about referendums generally that can potentially create an environment of harm for the people who are their subjects. Yeah, absolutely. It's a real, um, there's a real history, I suppose, of the 1967 referendum with within Aboriginal communities in Australia. Um, that's kind of a reference point, I think, we're going to when we're thinking about the national conversation. Um, and I think what we saw with the plebiscite and now with this upcoming vote is you become everyone's topic, right? So your life and the destiny of your life and your community's life is really out for open discussion Um, and oftentimes you're not involved in that discussion and you're not Mm. aware that it's about to happen Um, and that can be quite confronting it can be quite confronting when you're the topic of the lunchtime conversation and people start expressing some opinions that aren't necessarily favorable Um, so it can be really disrupting to people's well-being um, and just a real shock to the system of um, being discussed at such a national level. How does that then translate into stress? I mean, what sort of impacts are you seeing or are we likely to see affecting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as a result of the conversations being had around them? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, 
I think the impacts we saw from the plebiscite is that people who are exposed to the no campaign or living in high no vote regions had a lot of what they called um, the kind of stress around that vote. I think likewise, uh, hearing conversations about yourself and really your place in the country. So as an Aboriginal person, um, it's really personal and the vote really gets to the crux of do we actually believe, in my opinion, in Aboriginal sovereignty and there's a place for Aboriginal people to have self-determination in this country? And that really gets to people's sense of dignity, their sense of their right to live as how they want to live in Australia. And when that's constantly being questioned or debated in really uh, ways that aren't sensitive to the topic, that is just an added stress that's going into people's lives. It might not be really obvious. It might be kind of chipping away at us subconsciously, but it's there and everyone in our community is picking up on it. Um, so it's definitely a stress factor that's going to increase over the next few months. Mm. Well, we'll talk a little bit later about how non-Indigenous Australians can be sensitive when they're having those conversations and therefore mitigate against some of that potential harm. But I wanted to ask you, what part is racism playing in this debate and also the, the way in which it then affects Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders? Yeah, that, that's a really, it's a really tricky one because I actually think one of the silver linings, I suppose, of this this conversation is, other, other than having a conversation around recognition in the constitution, is actually bringing to forefront this conversation of racism in Australia that we're really not good at having, right? Australians really detest talking about racism in general, um, and it's this big, bad, dirty word. Um, the research we do in talking with young people about experiences of daily racism is that it is so prevalent in our lives and it and it's not just the racial slurs and the discriminations it's things like um well you guys should just get over it right we're all one country right it's those notions that really we deny the the history of australia or we deny that it still has an impact on aboriginal people so that has real racial undertones um, and people don't often associate that with the nastiness that they associate with racism but the impact is still the same um, it's still very stressful. What we find with young people as well is this notion that they're treated as if all Aboriginal people are the same, right, and everyone would have the same view on this and that Aboriginal Australia is one, one homogenous group of people. Um, and so likewise with the voice, assuming that people don't have different reasons for how they're going to vote or different views on what the vote means, um, is also a form of race, racism in the form that it homogenises us and doesn't see us as a complex community with complex views. Exactly. And you mentioned the marriage equality plebiscite. I believe you and your colleagues have written about the experiences of LGBTQIA plus people in the marriage equality plebiscite in terms of what we can learn from that as we proceed to the Indigenous Voice referendum. Before we hear about those lessons, can you tell us what is known about how LGBTQI plus people experience the plebiscite yeah. and the processes and debates that went with it, the conversations that you're sort of talking about now in this context? Absolutely. So from the research we looked at, it's, um, you know, people who are exposed to no level, no type campaigns during the plebiscite had higher psychological distress and just had general stress leading up to the vote, psychological distress leading up to the vote because of being part of that national conversation and essentially having to hear homophobic remarks come out, 
you know, sometimes from colleagues who you would think were supportive, but when it really becomes to having the conversation, people's kind of true opinions come out. So our our view is that while it's really important to have this national conversation, as it was with the plebiscite, to be able to have the vote, it needs to be done in a sensitive way that recognises that you're talking about people's lives, people's rights to live as they want in, in both types of situations. Um, and being up for public debate, you know, we could all put ourselves in the shoes of someone who is up for public debate and their life up for public debate um, without any protections around that can be quite damaging. And I know you work at the intersection of gender and uh, indigeneity. How helpful or relevant is the information from the, the plebiscite experience about a group that are marginalised by sex and gender when we come to seek to understand the ways of supporting Indigenous people? I, I think it's really important from the plebiscite perspective, we have that data to show that if people were supported or had social supports around them, that helped them get through the vote or any kind of vote-related stress. So we can learn that. Um, it's this, it's a similar parallel that we've pointed out when we're discussing it in terms of being part of a marginalised community, but the majority community essentially is making that choice for you. Um, so the majority of non-LGBT um, uh, people were making decisions around same-sex marriage or marriage equality, and likewise, it'll be non-Aboriginal people who are the majority voters in the upcoming referendum. Um, so there's parallels that can be taken around how we su support minority communities um, and likewise, from our research of people who live within that quote unquote double minority, how we can those minority communities can support and rally for each other during this time. And what are the unique aspects of the referendum on the voice that will adversely or potentially adversely affect Indigenous Australians? What are the what are the areas where we can't use the experience of the plebiscite um, and we're sort of navigating new territory? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's like I said earlier, is this one is really about to me and, and from from many community members I've talked about is our right to live as as we want, as to have self-determination. So there's parallels to um, the plebiscite. But when we're coming to change the constitution, um, we're looking at, a, you know, a different level of um, uh, legal process that we're voting on, but also looking at how we recognise First Nations Australians in Australia um, in, and in conversations around what Australian um, nationhood looks like going forward. So it's, it's very impactful in terms of if we, if we say that we don't have a place or a recognition in the constitution and a right to determine um, how we live our lives and policy that affect our lives, that's a very strong message that's being sent to Aboriginal people about their future in Australia. I'm particularly worried about the impact it's going to have for young people and how they see themselves as Australians and First Nations Australians. Um, so I think there's some ripple effects um, that aren't being talked about enough, I suppose, in terms of what the outcome of a no vote would be. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR Breakfast. We've been hearing from Associate Professor and Dean of Indigenous Knowledge at Murdoch University, Bep Ewink, about the impact of the voice referendum on Indigenous Australians. Bep explains that some Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders feel stress and discomfort due to the constant debate around their lives in the lead up to the referendum. Similar impacts were felt by the LGBT community during the equal marriage plebiscite. There is much to learn from that experience. Listening to Bep, I can't help wonder how young Indigenous people are faring in all this. 
They might not be old enough to vote, but there's a lot at stake here for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Bep has told me that much of her work is centred on the experiences of Indigenous youth, so I ask her what impact the referendum is having on them. Absolutely right, and then I think young people being left a lot out of the conversation when we're talking about this just because they're not voting, so just because they're not 18, doesn't mean they're not at home hearing conversations between family members, certainly doesn't mean they're not seeing stuff online um, and they're not reading comments and they're also not tuned into the media um, and hearing things. So while it's not directly going to impact their behaviour because they're not being able to um, have a vote, we have to be aware that this is the implicit messaging we're sending young people about their place in Australia. And they may not have the same level of um, developmental understanding of, of why people may vote yes or no. So in my opinion, all they're hearing is um, you don't have a place in Australia with a, with a no vote. You don't have a place as a First Nations person. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's, there's Uluru Youth Yarn. So there are programs that are going around and deliberately trying to talk to young people about this process so they have a chance to air some of their concerns, air some of their worries, um, develop some strategies for what might happen on the outcome of a no vote or a yes vote or what that might mean. Um, there's also Ray Lovett's team at ANU who, who received some of the national funding we were talking about, about following up on um, Aboriginal communities' wellbeing. So it'd be really fantastic to make sure that young people are included in that research and those priorities going forward because even though, like you said, they're not voting, they're definitely hearing this messaging. We're listening to Associate Professor and Dean of Indigenous Knowledge at Murdoch University, Bep Ewink, speak about the impact of the Voice to Parliament debates on Indigenous Australians in the lead-up to the referendum. Before my time with Bep finished, I wanted to pick up on something she mentioned earlier in our conversation, the impact of the No campaign on Indigenous Australians and perhaps more crucially, what impact a no outcome might have? Either just exposure to some of the frankly racist rhetoric around the no vote around, and, and you know, we talk about this people saying it's going to be divisive and the commentary that the vote is divisive. It's not really tapping into the, the large amount of work that community has done to try and come together on this issue or at least hear um, diverse opinions on this issue. Um, so just leading up to the vote, the the no campaign tends to have the impact we we imagine will have the impact of negatively impacting people's well-being if it is a no voice a no vote if that's what comes then i think we need to be really careful about explaining what that does mean to young people particularly but in aboriginal communities how do we regather from that um you know is if for people who were voting no for aboriginal people who do vote no giving them space to be able to explain their positions and where they think we should go post a vote um so we need those opportunities to be able to come together and have those discussions without those discussions i suppose being co-opted by people who want to put forward an agenda that isn't in support of aboriginal self-determination and I believe $10 million has been um, put aside by the federal government to support mental health programs specifically in relation to impacts of the referendum. Are you aware of work being done to, as you say, gather people together if there is a no outcome? So, no, I'm not aware of anything at the moment. It's a it's a relatively new announcement and I was talking to a colleague um, who, who's part of um uh, the Nacho organisation who received the funding and I know a couple of weeks ago they were still waiting to hear how that funding would be doled out. So I think 
um, at least in, in WA, from a WA perspective, it's early days. Um, I do think people have been talking about this leading up to that announcement. So the announcement is welcome, but, you know, since the start of the year, at least we've been flagging and the conversations I'm having in community is flagging how we're going to deal with, um, you know, comments leading up to the vote and the outcome of the vote. Um, so it's a really welcome funding. I'm not aware of how people are going to be spending those. I would encourage, um, you know, people to who, who are in control of that funding to really have those opportunities to have those community conversations. I think we have strength through those conversations to do them in sensitive ways, but we can't have people feeling isolated um, whichever way the vote goes. Um, we, we need to come together as a community to support each other or to celebrate or to plan a way forward um, and not have some not have this vote as, an, as a reason to be divided. And on an individual and community level, what are some of the ways in which non-Indigenous people who, as you point out, are the majority of voters, uh, what are the things that we can do to mitigate the adverse impacts of the referendum process? You talked about communication and sensitivity. Um, maybe you could expand on that. Yeah, I think it's, first and foremost, I think it's really important that non-Aboriginal people find their own reason for why they are voting, whichever way they decide to vote. Um, so I think you need to have a personal reason. It can't just be, well, I heard this, da, da, da. I would really encourage everyone to interrogate their views on this issue. Once you do, I think you would understand that there's real there's a real depth to this issue that's being overlooked currently in, in mainstream debates. Um, there's a real solid question about Indigenous self-determination here. And if you can express that to people um, when you're having conversations with colleagues, with um, friends, with community members around your personal beliefs, then I think that comes from a more empathetic stance. Um, I think, you know, this, this whole idea of conversations in the workplace, conversations around the dinner table are all fantastic. Um, prefacing that uh, this can be a distressing topic and likely is a distressing topic. So asking permission to talk about something, if there's Aboriginal people involved in that conversation, you're not just going to launch into a conversation around the vote. Um, you know, asking permission, um, talking, asking your colleagues' views or your friends' or community members' views and, and how they're going, checking in with them to see how they're going. Um, and for young people as well, I mean, I think talking to our children around do they know what's going on? Do they understand what's going on? Are they hearing something at school? Are they seeing something online? This is a really good opportunity to educate them around processes and um, current conversations in Australia. Thank you very much. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, I just I think it's fantastic to see the funding coming out. And again, I would really encourage, if not, uh, as well as the community conversations, I think we also need to think about some of our older generations. So we've talked about young people, but we need to remember that for our older generations, people who were around um, during some real um, divisive years in Australian policy, this could be really isolating for them too. And oftentimes our older generations are quite alone. Um, and so I would encourage everyone just to check in with their aunties and uncles and, and grandmas, et cetera, because um, I think the, the national conversation could bring up quite some traumatic things for them. So we need to be looking into their well-being as well. And that was Associate Professor and Dean of Indigenous Knowledge at Murdoch University, Bep Ewink, speaking about the impact of the Voice to Parliament debates on Indigenous Australians in the lead up to the referendum an important advice for non-Indigenous Australians about approaching discussions on this subject in a culturally sensitive way. 
If any of the issues mentioned in this segment have raised concerns for you, you can call Lifeline on 131114 and for mob only support 13YARN. 139276. LGBTQI plus listeners may also wish to contact Q Life on 1800 184 between 3pm and midnight or visit qlife.org.au. This subject was discussed by Beck Ewink and others in an article in The Conversation. I'll be putting details of where you can read that article in our show notes. And now we're going to head across to Grace, who's going to be speaking to Misha Keschel from The Conversation, so very timely, in just a moment. Hi, I'm Nova Perris, and you're listening to 3CR. Be proud, be strong. You have a smile that bring a tear to my eye. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Um, so I think a lot of us know by now how the AI is taking over the world. And there's just many risks, but also opportunities with incorporating it into our daily lives and work. And this includes journalism as well as independent media. Joining me this morning is Misha Ketchell, the editor at The Conversation, as we discuss how AI makes journalism even more important and why we should support independent journalism. Good morning, Misha. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good, good. All right, so just a bit start off as like a warm-up with our first question. How has manipulation through the media evolved over the decades from newspapers then to social media? How has it become more pervasive? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, I guess there's always been manipulation through the media. Um, some of it has been right out front where you can see it. Um, for example, you know, advertising, um, where it's clear that, you know, um, people who have got a vested interest in you buying a particular product or doing a particular thing pay the newspaper money and then they use its pages to try to get you to do that thing. Um, but there's always been a range of other vested interests that have manipulated the media or manipulated journalism um, and have done that by getting their messages or their agendas actually into the news coverage um, in various ways. And I think what's happened really is since sort of the digital revolution, um, we've seen um, really strong pressure on the business models that actually support journalists and journalism. Newspapers, which once had huge numbers of staff, if you think about the age newspaper in Melbourne, for example, it once would have had three, four hundred journalists. Um, its staff would now be a quarter of that um, because uh, newspapers can't make as much money as they used to. All the money is being made by digital platforms uh, in an online environment. Um, people are being entertained in different ways. Um, and what that means is that the journalists, who to some extent could call them the cops on the beat, they're the people who actually... Uh, go out and sort through information and work out what's true and what's not and what's legitimate and if there's a vested interest trying to peddle it. Um, there are fewer of them around. Um, the, the problem that AI has sort of created for us is that now 
by basically being taught about the world. Um, Google's got a data set called C4 that it's using to teach its AI um, about a whole range of things that exist in the world currently. Um, and they're using what they call open data sources. Mm. So not things that are behind paywalls, but uh, websites that are basically free. Now, the problem with that is that in an online environment, you've got a lot of stuff that's got misinformation, disinformation, fake news, agendas. Um, you know, the Washington Post is this big story where they looked at the data set that Google's using to teach AI. It's got things like far-right websites, websites that do piracy, websites with connection to Russian-backed state propaganda. There's a lot of misinformation um, in the information that is going to be teaching AI. And that's going to be a problem because um, if basically you type something into Google and you get a search result, and that search result is based on some factual information, some information that's made up, how are you going to know what's true? It's going to be really confusing, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially when a lot of us, from whenever we start our research, we rely a lot, a lot on Google. And even like we, when we search up on the conversation, uh, we search up stuff from the conversation, we also still have to go through Google and and then hopefully find the articles we are looking for uh, that hopefully have accurate information. And and in regards to that, you, you mentioned a bit something regarding the whole uh, paywall and then you mentioned that uh, in your article as well that the Washington Post also found quite a few reputable sources. So what is the rank here, I would say, with the conversation? Okay, so what I actually looked at was this article in the Washington Post that ranked the top 200 sites that were being used for this particular Mm -hmm. AI data set that Google had, which is called the C4 data set. And one of the things that was interesting, which we were encouraged by, was that the conversation came in and I think 153. So out of the top 200 that Google was using to train its AI, the conversation was 153. Now that's great because the conversation is information that's written by academic experts, edited and fact-checked by professional journalists. Um, it basically exists to inform public discussion and to put facts mm-hmm. and good quality information, evidence-based information on the public record. Um, so to see a really high-quality source like that ranking quite highly, that's encouraging. Um, and there are some other encouraging sources too. They had the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times and the Washington Post, a whole bunch of fairly serious journalistic sites rated quite highly in terms of what's teaching AI. That's a, that's a good thing. The downside is that the reality is, is that we know that in the current media environment... Um, many of the best sources are behind paywalls, whether it be information in academic journals, for example, from new research or new information, or really high-quality media outlets that can't make money unless they put their information behind a paywall. The sources of quality information are often hard to get at. Um, And Google's um, CEO has said that basically the AI is going to be taught predominantly by open sources of information that's not behind a paywall. Um, So what that means is a lot of really good quality information um, is being kept away from people when they need it. Mm. So basically, does that mean that when the company 
the company's AI model will use the information from the open web. That's where they will basically kind of prioritize taking information that uh, come that comes up whatever that aren't behind a paywall. Is that what that that's basically what it means? That's right. So the so the priority will be is the information open, not is the information good. Um, and the difficulty about that is that our world is going to be framed, I think, uh, worryingly increasingly by misinformation and disinformation. And that's why um, independent sources of media and quality media are so important. So the conversation exists, um, much like 3CR, uh, as a as a sort of not-for-profit media organisation that exists to serve the public. Um, so what we do is we work with academics, we put information into the public sphere, uh, we put it out there for free. Um, and the reason we put it out there for free is because we believe everybody should have access to quality information, mm-hmm. whether they can afford to pay. Information is the lifeblood of democracy. It helps you decide who to vote for, it helps you form your views on the important issues of your time, whether they be you know, climate change or health issues or um, social issues. Um, having quality information is really important in that sense. But it's also really important in terms of informing your own personal decisions in your life. I mean, you need to know what the research is on vaccines to decide whether to get a vaccine. You need to know um, about the research on education and what, what works in education to decide, you know, um, where you're going to... Um, you know, how are you going to help your child uh, through school or, you know, how are you going to help your child do homework or a whole range of things. You actually need really good quality information. And it mm. used to be that we were lucky enough that there were business models that supported this. Mm. And now it's organisations like 3CR and The Conversation. We're doing it free for the public and we're relying on basically a model where we ask the public to support us. So we're in the middle of our annual donations drive and we're asking people who can who can afford it um, mm. to make what, a donation whatever they can afford to support the conversations, quality journalism. And I think, you know, 3CR is, is doing the same currently, aren't you? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah. as we are on the topic of independent journalism, because 3CR is also actually having our annual fundraiser event called Radiothon. And, and just like the conversation, we have been... We have been constantly very focused on giving free, free news and free journalism because we think that it's very important that information are put out there, and that's the whole thing about journalism, right? And we 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 need we have it because it's for the public interest and making sure that people are informed of factual news, accurate news, as much as possible. And so that's why I think people should always constantly try to support us as well. So as as part of like the support for uh, 3CR's Radiothon, and uh, yeah. are you willing to pledge for us in yeah. our Radiothon? Yep. Sure, I will pledge you. I don't know, what's a normal pledge? <laughs> what do you need to pledge for 3CR? Um, um, what if I said $100? Oh, that that would be lovely. Honestly, no, no amount, any amount is very appreciative for all of us. We... Over two dollars are actually tax deductible, and so well, obviously, no amount is small or big. Anything is fine. We appreciate any any amount of support and donation from anyone. And also, thank you to and thank you so much to me, you, Misha. If you're willing to uh, donate to us hundred dollars, that that's really great. That's we are really grateful for that. 
Okay, fantastic. And if I've now I've pledged it, how do I actually give it to you? Do I have to go to a website or something, or what's what happens next? Yep. We can give you those details right now, Misha. They're uh, in glaring big letters throughout the studio. So uh, <laughs> we have a uh, actually a dedicated breakfast Give Now page. So you can go to www.givenow.com.au forward slash CR forward slash breakfast. And that will take you to our breakfast page. And uh, the breakfast show is aiming to raise $8,000. So uh, your contribution is so appreciated. Yeah, so thank you very much. And I would just like to, to add as well that the conversation is uh, something I read every day. Mm-hmm. Me too. <laughs> and it's a source of, a huge source of uh, information, perspective and um, reliable uh, information. And in fact, our opening segment this morning was an interview with Bep Ewink from Murdoch University about how we can uh, look after and support in a culturally safe way Indigenous Australians in the lead-up to the referendum. Uh, And, yeah, that was coming out of an an article that I read in the conversation. So, uh, yeah, so it's nice to be able to to work with the people that you work with as well and get these stories out in different ways and in different media. Fantastic. Thank you. Actually, I heard the end of that interview and I noted it was um, a piece that we published. So that's that's terrific to hear. Yeah. Yeah. We rely a lot on conversation, actually. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. a lot of a lot of times we actually have gone, tr- gone through the conversation to search for experts that we hope we can talk to to talk about very important topics. So, yeah, to our listeners out there, the conversation is actually a very important platform for many of us journalists as well. So, yeah. Uh, so Misha, for, I mean, in regards to the donation again for the conversation, so we uh, do we ha- just have to go on the website to donate, or is there a specific platform? It's pretty much exactly the same as you. If you go to the conversation dot com dot au, you will see red things everywhere saying "please donate." <laughs> so um, it will be very very difficult to miss. Awesome, that's lovely. I've also. Oh, sorry. I think I forgot to mention this. Um, I sort of actually donated for the conversation because I, I think that it's uh, very important. Uh, I don't think I donated enough to be honest. But so I, I'm, I'm gonna make sure I donate a bit more later. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Well, look, I'm doing your donation now as we speak, and it says I can support a team member. Um, is that right? On your, there's like a, there's a specific thing where you can support an individual. Um, I think, I think you can you can uh, pledge to the show when and we're the Wednesday breakfast show, um, but yeah. you can also pledge directly to Grace Tan, who's just interviewed okay. you. Yep, that's up to up I'm to you. Support, I'm going to support Grace Tan. <laughs> thank <laughs> you so much. Good on you. <laughs> all right, all right. So uh, thank thank you so much, Misha, for your time. Unfortunately, we have already run out. Um, but thank you so much for. Talking, to, speaking to us about independent media and why we should support independent journalism, and how because of the AI, it makes journalism even more important. Fantastic! Thank you both, and thanks for your work. Thank you so much, Misha. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you. That was Misha Ketchell, the editor at the Conversation, speaking on how the AI now makes journalism even more important due to its uh, emergence and why we should support independent journalism. 
it's so important to support independent media and journalism. The conversations actually are very important place and as a student journalist myself I do get my information and resources from the conversation to ensure I report and introduce factual accurate information from real experts and not made up experts so if you would like to support the conversation please head to donate.theconversation.com we will also put it up in our show notes so you can access the direct link and yeah just make sure while we're on our topic of independent media 3 is also actually currently having our annual radiothon so if you want to support radical radio and media and you enjoy listening to us head to our webpage 3cr.org.au and you'll find our fundraising page at givenow.com.au excellent we're going to head to a track now this is sister girls by oetha <laughs> Genocide combined, tell them in the darkness, resilience thrives with an unmatched beauty and fire in her eyes. She burns as bright as the stars in the sky, cause the warrior spirit is very hard to come by. So when they ask what's a woman's worth, you say the greatest gift alive on earth. Uh, uh. Beautiful queen that I've ever seen, holding it down for your family. On your grind, your old smile, being real on the inside. Earth and fire, shine a Black diamond shining bright I see you carry yourself with beautiful pride Giving hope, raising kids for our future A smile without a reason, you're a gift of a teacher You're the strongest woman that I've ever seen Work hard, projecting positivity Holding it down, I'm grown in that tapestry Giving room to dream, no silver spoon to feed Baby girl, be proud, make the best choice in life Keep your head up, this is my only advice your love stirs in the belly of the streets Careful what you learn, finding your inner peace You're more loud than you could possibly see Like a rose that grew in these concrete scenes Each day there's hope, always remember I got your back in any type of weather Beautiful queen that I've ever seen Holding it down for your 
to the feet, keep your head up. And this is for my single moms at home, racing baby all alone, cause dad's gonna keep your head up. And this is for my independent girls that be taking on the world, not a father, keep your head up. And this is for my frontline women who've been there from the beginning, stand tall and keep your head up. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. We're going to head now to our next segment and the environment. The Pacific is often described as being on the front lines of climate change as rising sea levels threaten land, culture and livelihoods. Netta Mayava is a Samoan Pacific climate warrior fighting to preserve her homeland. Earth Matters presenter Jacob Gamble caught up with Netta to bring you this chat. My name is Neta Mayava and I am of full Samoan descent, so I have Polynesian heritage from the Pacific. Uh, both my parents were born in Samoa, and I, whereas I was born in New Zealand, so I have that connection through my parents and my culture and heritage, uh, also making me a second generation immigrant. And I'm a part of the Pacific Current Warriors, as you mentioned, and that's under 350, or 350, and that's a youth-led grassroots network working with communities to fight uh, climate change from the Pacific Islands and relative um, related diasporas. Yeah, such important work uh, that you're doing. Was there any kind of big personal moment that got you into climate advocacy and set you on this path? Yeah, so growing up, I kind of like always had a little personality trait for like caring for the environment. I thought it was a bit quirky for that. Um, <laughs> but then it wasn't until 2019 when the school strike for climate um, rally happened in New Zealand. Um, that's when it kind of really sparked my passion for advocating for climate change from a Pacific perspective. And that's mostly from in a little group called 4TK, which stands for For the Culture. So it's a small group from New Zealand, um, mainly South Auckland. And it was a bunch of school kids who kind of are Pacifica school kids. And they rallied like all of the Pacific communities to get involved with the school strike. Um, just to make sure that we were heard and were a part of the conversation. And yeah, so they really inspired me because, you know, they're school kids. They were young. I was, I was a bit older um, at that time, a bit older than them. But they really inspired me to really push forward and find something, you know, where I am to be a part of the conversation as well. Mm. And how have you found it so far? I think it's been an amazing experience. Um, I've definitely, from talking to other climate activists, I've had a different experience because I've been joined with my community. Mm. Um, but I think that's only made my experience better and a lot safer and um, really welcoming for me too, yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear it. And when we talk about the Pacific, it's so often referred to in the media as on the front lines of climate change um, because obviously it's it's such a vulnerable region. I mean, how does this make you feel um, when you see sort of those headlines? And are there any other narratives of the Pacific around climate change that you feel like aren't getting that attention? Yeah, so I think 
Um, it's important to acknowledge that, you know, it is the truth that we are um, the communities that are at the front lines of this, of the effects of climate change. But I think there's one, like, strong motto that the Pacific Climate Warriors have always been, like, trying to push forward. So we have this saying called, we are not drowning, we are fighting. And that's just our way of saying that um, even though we're at the front, like, we're warriors. That's it's in our names, and we're we're here to fight. And we're, you know, um, because I've I've heard a lot of people talk about the Pacific in such a dystopian way, like in a way that you know it, it seems like there's no hope for us. But we definitely, you know, hope is a, a strong point in our organization, and we definitely want to push that story that we that we are not drowning and we are fighting. Mm, it's such a great message, mm-hmm. and. In this fight for climate justice, what do you see as some of the major challenges? I think, um, like, climate justice is... It intersects with a lot of other different issues, and I think one of the biggest, like, um, even just being in, you know, so-called Australia or living or benefiting off of this stolen land, one of the biggest challenges is that First Nations justice is climate justice. Mm. And so um, we intersect a lot of with First Nations justice and Indigenous justice. So it, they kind of come hand in hand. So I think that's like a big challenge that already exists. And then to have the impacts of climate change on top of that, like already makes the issue like a whole lot bigger as well. Mm-hmm. And I guess uh, from your uh, family and your heritage perspective in Samoa, what do you see as some of the challenges facing that uh, island nation? I think one of the biggest one is the sea level rising. So there's a lot of villages that are out on the coast and then as the sea level rises, they're slowly coming inwards and then people have to like relocate where they've been living. Um, they just have to move inwards a lot. Um, there's a lot of scientific facts in the way climate change has been affecting Samoa. Uh, fortunately for the family that I do know, that in Samoa they've been okay because they don't live out too close to the coast. Mm. But I think it's all connected anyway. So any issues that they're facing with businesses or agriculture, like it's all, it's all together, and it will affect them eventually. Or if not, they're already being affected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And being in Australia as well, we're considered sort of one of the the more influential nations on this. We have the highest pollution per capita in the world. And the Albanese government has made many commitments to climate action, but simultaneously, they're also funding fossil fuels. So Mm -hmm. we're in this weird position where we're fighting climate change, but we're also contributing to it. I mean, in your eyes, does Australia have a bigger role to play in safeguarding the future for our Pacific neighbours? I definitely think so. I I, um, definitely think there's something there that needs to be talked about. Um, And like you mentioned, like there's been a lot of conversation around climate finance and loss and damage funds. And I think it's more about making sure that it doesn't stay a conversation and there's action put towards that too. Um, And it's not just all talk and greenwashing. I'd love to hear your thoughts on um, loss and damage and and Mm. climate finance. Um, yeah, so the establishment for loss and damage uh, fund at COP27 was a win for the Pacific. Um, but again, like COP27 and COP26, or all the COPs that we've had, is a big discussion. And 
what what should come out of that is action. So there's still a lot of uh, work that needs to be done until climate finances reach the communities that need it the most. A hundred percent. And you were talking a bit before as well about how climate justice and First Nations justice go hand in hand. What actions would you like to see as well to to preserve Indigenous communities, culture and and land? Yes, a lot of solidarity work needs to be done. And also, I think a lot of the climate justice solutions are Indigenous solutions. If you go back to history and the way that uh, many communities were living before, they were all sustainable, or mostly were all sustainable. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from there and a lot that our government should be looking into to really solve this climate issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's It can be a very grim topic to talk about uh, climate change, as you would know. What climate positive future would you envision? Yeah, I think... Um, there's there's plenty of hope. Like I think it all comes in people power. You know, it's not something the individual can do. It's a lot of community work. It's a lot of rallying together. And you know, if everyone can put in, I don't see why there can't be a positive outcome at the end. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of working together and putting in the work together. It shouldn't be on one person. And you're never alone in this movement, especially nowadays. Like the movement's really coming along together well. So I think, yeah, there's no. I I don't see no reason why we can't push forward and fight for this. Mm-hmm. And if there's any listeners tuning in who want to get a bit more involved uh, in climate justice, how would you, uh, or where would you guide them to? Um, of those with uh, Pacifica descent, you know, definitely look into the Pacific Climate Warriors. We have a lot of groups um, in different parts of Australia and different parts of the world as well and different diasporas. Um, but there's a lot of good groups out there of those who are not necessarily of Pacifica descent. We have Seed Mob, um, we have AYCCA that you've mentioned too, a lot of school strikers as well. And there's a lot of different groups out there that you can find a fit for you as well. Yeah, awesome. Well, Neda, thank you so much for coming in. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you so much for having me. This this has been a good conversation. Yeah, and uh, keep up all the solidarity work. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. That was Neta Mayava, a Pacific climate warrior, speaking with Jacob Gamble about the impacts of climate change on the Pacific. The resounding message, the Pacific is fighting, not drowning. You can check out the work of the Climate Warriors at 350.org.au. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 
triple one five hundred. That's one three hundred triple one five hundred. Wellway supports three CR. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Copower gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Copower member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Copower today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. And you are on 3CR AM 855 AM on your dial and on digital radio. Uh, This is 3CR Breakfast. Now, we're going to be joined by People for a Living Movable Coordinator Cameron Steele regarding the Moolaboo River. Uh, There's been uh, suspected unlicensed dams which are causing huge water shortages for the river. Uh, Cameron, welcome. Uh, Good morning, Patrick. How are you going this morning? Oh, well, thank you. Great to hear. Firstly, Cameron, just give us an idea, where is the Moolaboo River based and where does it flow from and why is it important to the ecosystem? So the Moolaboo River um, has its headwaters basically in the Wombat Forest, which is uh, east of Ballarat, and it flows down to uh, the confluence with the Barwon River in Geelong and then contributes to water into the Ramsar wetland at Connawarri and then flows out to the sea at Barwon Heads. Yes, yes. And why, uh, in terms of uh, what's going on at the moment, you know, um, your uh, report uh, you guys filed, People for a Living Moolaboo, uh, said that 218 new or large dams have been constructed from 2005 to 2021. Uh, 131 of those dams were uh, built in between the seven years between 2012 and 2018. Uh, what do these dams do to the river? So the Moorable is a quite a long, thin catchment, and virtually all of its watercourses empty into the river. 
And when you um, uh, look at uh, the long-term statistics, the Moorabool River's uh, probably uh, either the most or the second most impacted by farm dams of any um, river system throughout Victoria. So if there's a series of dry years and those dams empty, then what, uh, especially drought years, what uh, what can happen is those dams will get the first drink of water and it extends the drought for rivers, you know, uh, for the Moorable River in, uh, in particular. And it, it really, all, all water courses contribute to flows in the river and, and the Moorable River is the most flow stressed in Victoria. So it's already got a large um, impact from existing farm dams and what we're seeing is that farm dam numbers are not, um, flattening out, yeah, they keep yeah, increasing year on year. Yeah, in terms of that, uh, you're saying the most uh, stressed river is that because of just the usage? It's got to do with um, neighbouring onto farms and 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 the likes. Oh no, the, the primary usage would be for urban um, water. So yeah. ba- Ballarat and Geelong derive water from the Moorable system. It's got a um, some uh, a massive dam, uh, a water catchment. Uh, dam on it and uh, at Lalal, but there's also a series of other um, water authority dams. Now we've put pressure on the state government and they've stepped up and they're, they've actually increased the amount of environmental flows um, or planning to that come out of those dams. But you know, there's a really a very real sense of you know we're, we're getting some back for the river, but then some is being taken away on the other hand. So the drive to try and secure the future of the river is being frustrated uh, a little by, you know, the proliferation of farm dams. Yeah, and and on those farm dams, uh, you know, your report that you uh, put into this and the findings, only three of those 218 dams that I've mentioned have been licensed by Southern Rural Victoria. So the listeners out there just wondering what I mean by that, uh, the Victorian Register, uh, they use a license system which entitles an irrigate a specific parcel or parcels of land. This license sets out conditions for use, says how much water you can use on your land in a single irrigation season. Um, uh, Cameron, have you uh, told Southern Rural Water, the regulator, and what's been their response to the to that finding? Look, the Southern Rural Water um, response has been good. They've acknowledged the issue, and um, to be honest, the vast majority of those dams are unlikely to have needed a licence. Um, you know, if a farmer puts a small dam in the corner of his paddock for stock and domestic, that has very little impact on, on the river. Mm. Um, it's the dams on watercourses that we're most concerned about. And the legislation says if a dam goes on a watercourse, it needs a licence. Now, we, you know, we'll be up to Southern Rural Water to do uh, an audit of those 200-odd dams, and they may well find um, that some... On a, um, you know, they mightn't define a watercourse the same way uh, that we would. Um, we go off the Victorian. Um, uh, there's some data that we've downloaded, which shows the watercourses across the catchment, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's an issue that we'd like resolved as well. There's a lot of ambiguity about what a watercourse is, but certainly there's some quite large dams that have been put on, um, and these are we're talking 20, 30, 40, 60 megalitres. Wow which are far bigger than, you know, the corner dam in a, in a farmer's paddock. And those ones, um, we're hoping Southern Rural Water will uh, investigate and attend to um, quickly. Yeah, and what does, in terms of you are saying, it, you know, by building these dams uh, and those that may be unlicensed or licensed that have these massive amounts of water, it puts a huge strain on the uh, population of Ballarat and Geelong. Oh, yeah, it, it, look. 
um, ultimately, the, as those town, cities increase, um, we're going to have to look at climate independent sources of water and that will be recycled or desalination or whatever. We will have to take pressure off rivers like the Moorable. And you know, a, a telling statistic is the, the Moorable under natural conditions would have 90 megalitres a day coming out at its uh, confluence with the Barwon. It currently has 10. Yeah. So this river has a long way to um, claw itself back to have a sustainable future. And the ecosystems along there, we've got things like um, uh, shortfin deal, um, blackfish, and we've got migratory species that need a connected and flowing river um, to continue to survive. And that's just where we're seeing the opposite happening in the Moorable. Yeah, yeah, that, that's very important. The ecosystem is super important. It doesn't matter which river it is, uh, Cameron, it, it needs uh, its livelihood especially. Uh, it's something that I found fascinating and you um, uh, just discussing uh, through my report, looking through my research and the likes, there's been the construction of the wind farm projects such as the Lai Lai Wind Farm Project, which is not far uh, from where the Moolaboo River starts. And uh, looking into that, they build big quarries, um, which basically big holes um, of putting their supplying their equipment, and uh, this is also due to you know minimise the emissions, and um, which is a great thing by the companies involved. Um, but once that is done, they put water in these quarries next to the river. Now, Cameron, is this water being used? Is this water that they're putting? Is this water used um, from the river, or is this water that they've brought in? Your best you um, Yeah. Um... Uh, we've identified quite a few of those dams. I mean, um, you know, the, there's a dispute on whether you regard them as a, a quarry or a dam. There's certainly mm. some that uh, were quarried. Um, the operators need hard stand material, and they they uh, apparently take rock crushers on site and um, use material on site to construct the hard stand. But you know, uh, the, you can see some of them which are dug next to the roadway uh, um, accessing the tower and they're quite evidently, you know, uh, purely as a little quarry to produce that. But there's um, a lot of them that don't have those quarries. Instead, we see quite large dams being constructed. Now, these these have got a dam wall on them and they're on a water course. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it, it may well be that, you know, they've... Um, uh, you know, decided to um, uh, construct something like that uh, on the property. And as a result, we see, you know, some of the properties where wind farms have gone in, um, we see dams being constructed hand-in-hand uh, hand with that process. Now, you know, it's impossible for us to tell whether it was a, a direct result, but the, the assumption, um, I think, is there. Yeah, it's it's fascinating in terms of what the reporting's been like in the last week regarding this. Uh, the, the, some farmers have said that they use uh, they they use that water as for livestock livestock and the likes, but also uh, for private use. Um, it's almost a it's almost a free ticket in a way, Cameron, to just use the water that they've got on that dam. Yeah, if you look at um, there's a couple of uh, reports that have been put out by um, uh, DICA, the the government department. And um, when they've done some farm dam modelling, and they basically say that any dam over five megs should be regarded as an irrigation dam. Now, you know, that's, you know, obviously open to um, interpretation. Uh, but when you're talking about 30, 40, 50, 60 megalitre dams, it's, and, and on some of these properties, which already have, you know, reasonable water resources on them, 
it's you know we do have to start looking at you know um, appropriate use for this water, and I've got you know, absolutely no problem with um, a stock and domestic dam. Uh, I think it's vital to farming. I think farmers should have a right to put these dams in. Um, you know, uh, obviously our preference is not on a water course, and um, if it does, then it obviously needs a licence. But these large dams, I think the argument that they're just purely for stock and domestic, I, I think there has to be some justification mm. for that, um, and, and some, uh, you know, for the regulator to look over it and see if it is fair use of the water. Yeah, and that's something you've um, your organisation have put forward. A bit of a moratorium should be. Uh, put um, for the Moolaboo River catchment. Is Are you trying to model it based off what's happened in the Murray-Darling where they've um, tried to halt in, environmental flows and to make sure that downstream communities are not impacted as much? Is that something, an idea you're putting forward, Cameron, to the government? Oh, yeah, look, uh, the, the main reason for that is uh, we obviously don't have the regulation, the monitoring and the compliance right yet. Mm. Um, and I think we've, you know, hopefully we've been able to illustrate that you know, there is a problem here that needs dealing with, and I think we just need things to come up to standard, come uh, be put on an even keel. And look, we've got um, we were uh, originally kicking this off. We had farmers downstream who rely on the river for irrigation and for stock and domestic, and they were complaining to us about large dams going up in the head of the catchment. Mm. So it's not only environment; it's also downstream users who are impacted by this and. So, you know, their existing rights user, users who also need, need to be looked after in this, and they, you know, I think they themselves would welcome a moratorium, just a pause until we sort all this out and, and get our systems right. Yeah, and in terms of that, have you discussed, has, it been, has the group had an opportunity to speak to the Water Minister regarding the situation? Oh, we flagged it with her um, a, a long while ago, but we haven't since the reports come out, and we'll we'll be um, uh, putting in a request to ha- have a word with her. I I certainly think um, you know there there does seem to be a will among agencies to to um, address this and and see what policy changes might be needed. Um, so you know I'm hopeful. The, the government takes this as an opportunity, recognises that there's an issue and um, uh, starts to deal with it. Yeah, and in terms of your report as well, you're also calling for the state government to introduce the New South Wales model uh, to regulate waterways across the state, not just the Moolabrew, uh Cameron. Wh- why is that, if I may ask? Look, the, the New South Wales used to be the absolute laggard um, <laughs> on water policy and you know, the Four Corners report um, about water theft up there was you know quite extraordinary um, with you know and, and things like floodplain harvesting and all the rest of it. Uh, you know th- those are issues that um, you know aren't really applicable that applicable to a system like the Morrible, but obviously we've got a, um, the farm dams issue uh, down here, or sorry, you know large private dams. Mm. I'm not saying so. You know in New South Wales, what they did is really step up and they. Um, introduced a natural resources regulator and that that regulator looks at um, up-to-date satellite imagery and really takes an audit of um, what uh, construction or irrigation happens uh, I think on a virtually a monthly basis and they go in and they they are very quick to uh, investigate prosecute um, if if needed they not only uh, look at the um, 
uh, the landholder. But they also look at the construction or earth-moving company uh, that may have um, uh, put a uh, illegal dam structure in. Mm-hmm. So they're they're really on top of it. And I think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned um, from how they're doing things. I, I, you know, I'm not saying we have to. Uh, replicate that exactly, yep. but it, the situation is calling for for that degree of um, uh, change in what what we're doing. Yeah, it's fascinating because the Four Corners report into water theft was quite damning, and it, it shocked a lot of people um, across the country, not just in New South Wales and Victoria, Cameron. And um, I'm hopefully hopefully that doesn't come out in Victoria because. Um, we know water is a precious uh, source of um, uh, of nature, and is something that us humans need to drink every day. Oh, my word. And look, just a quick word on farmers. If a farmer's looking to introduce a, a, a dam onto his property, uh, he uh, may well have to go to three different agencies, mm. you know, the Council, Southern Rural Water, the CCMA. That that needs to be streamlined too. I mean, you know, uh, we, we need to make the system um, not only simple, um, but, you know, uh, we need to strengthen it, but we also need it so it... it, it it's understandable for everybody across the catchment. You know, there shouldn't be any any reason for somebody not to know their their rights and also their obligations when they're looking to impound water on their property. Well said, Cameron. That is all uh, we're going to have with you, Cameron. A lovely, lovely chat, and uh, hopefully, best of luck with the Moolaboo River. Hopefully, um, more policy will come out of this in the future months. Excellent. Thanks for your interest, Patrick. That's okay. All good. That was Cameron Steele there, People for a Living Moorabool Coordinator, discussing the river, the suspected unlicensed dams which are occurring across the Moorabool River in Victoria. It goes from Geelong to Ballarat, so very fascinating uh, stuff there. Well, we had really lovely chats on everything today. Very good examples of diverse media this morning. Definitely was. It was a mixture of everything: environment, water, um, a bit of farm action there, and then also with you, with your uh, lovely chat, Grace, with the editor for the conversation, mm-hmm. Misha Ketchell. I'm very pumped up about him getting a hundred dollars. If he's still <coughs> listening, thank you very much, mate. Uh, great work. <laughs> yeah, raising money is actually very stressful. Um, it's <laughs> it's 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 something that a lot of organisations are uh, that are obviously trying to get for donations. It's always something that takes a lot of time and energy, but you know, let's uh, let's hope our listeners continue to help support us. If you want to continue listening to us, it's actually very stressful for us. But you know, we are here because we want, we really want to bring the news to you and bring the important issues and discussions of topics that are undermined by the mainstream, the mainstream media. So yeah, yeah, and I think it's really important because if these not-for-profit organisations don't exist, then as Misha was saying, you know, there are paywalls behind a lot of other mm-hmm. yeah. factual, reliable news and AI is going to yeah. and know, yeah, just be taking their news from other sources that aren't, aren't reliable. So we really need to hold up our end by continuing to do what, what we do and bringing you, you're not going to get a story about a climate warrior in the Pacifica you know, mm, everywhere. Yeah. So if you want to hear the other perspectives, um, yeah, keep supporting us, keep listening. Yeah. And next week, um, yeah, it'll be our Radiothon week. I'll run through the numbers now, actually, because uh, listeners can jot them down and have them ready for next week. Our Give Now page is www.givenow.com.au and you can donate directly to the breakfast program there and nominate the Wednesday team. And 
you can also donate online uh, to 3cr.org.au through our normal donate pages. And, of course, call the station on 94198377. So, uh, yeah, we'll be giving out those numbers again next week. And uh, we'll look forward to speaking uh, with our listeners. We'll have some listeners calling in, hopefully, giving us some donations. And we'll be chatting to a, a few of our guests that we've had on the, the program and hearing from them about why 3CR makes a difference and helps them get their stories and insights out to the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And also just those listening, uh, every donation over $2 is tax deductible. So very key point there. Make sure you make a donation. Uh, it's very key to us uh, who broadcast each day uh, regarding every issue under the sun and uh, 3CR needs to have your support. Yeah, and not just online. You can also post your check to uh, us as well. So yeah, there's so many options, so no yeah. excuse. <laughs> and I think along with the conversation that we're having about the importance of independent media is also the reality that these donations don't come from anywhere else. No. We're, we don't have corporate advertising, so mm-hmm. th- this is literally going to pay the electricity bill and keep the station going. going. So, yeah, it's, it's absolutely dependent on this support. Well, I think that's all we've got time for this morning. So thank you to our listeners. Thank you to all our guests. Yeah. Stay tuned and looking forward to Radiothon next week. Yeah, we'll have a stick together coming up shortly. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.